0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are this week in Parshat Miketz. We are always in Miketz at Hanukkah. Uh, And so it is always read uh, at this exact time. Um, And uh, I mean, we're... um, we're in the middle of Mikate. So we're in the middle of this Parsha. Um, We've missed kind of a lot of what happened with Yosef, the beginning of the Joseph novella, uh, because we studied the inserted story of Judah and Tamar last week. So we missed kind of what was happening for Joseph uh, uh, in the middle of, um, of all that. So, uh, so let's recap just quickly for people who are not familiar with it. And this and this triennial um, is is in the middle of this parsha, and so nothing is resolved in this week's parsha. Um, our our triennial. So um, let's just review. So Jacob has two sons by Rachel. He has uh, Joseph, and he has Benjamin. Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin on the side of the road. She's buried uh, on the way from Haran back to uh, Canaan, back to Canaan. Uh, And so Jacob is bereft of his wife. Uh, And then we know that Joseph, the dreamer, um, brags about his dreams uh, of his rise to eminence um, over his brothers with the sheaves and the stars and all that stuff. And they, uh, they are just murderous in terms of their rage and um, disgust with him uh, and Jacob's overt preference of Joseph to all of the other brothers uh, and giving him a sign of that, some kind of uh, tunic, some kind of very expensive, very intricate uh, outer garment that shows the world that Jacob prefers Joseph. Um, and the brothers become serious. They are, they are murderous. They are just, they are that angry and disgusted. And so one day uh, Joseph's coming along and uh, they've been out with doing work. So um, they get upset uh, with him. Just they just even, they can't even look at him. Like here he comes and they just start talking about, let's get rid of him. And they, they do. Reuben wants to, or no, it's not Reuben. Reuben actually stops them, but they want to um, kill him. And, uh, and Reuben objects and says, don't spill his blood Don't let his blood be on our hands. And so they throw him into a bowl, into a pit, into a concave something, Um, probably a water cistern, um, a very deep pit. If you've been to Israel and you've seen the kind of things they dig to hold water, um, that's probably what we're talking about. Um, But it didn't have water in it. Um, And so he's, he's thrown into this. It's something he cannot get out of. Uh, And they leave him there. Essentially, they're going to leave him there to die um, when they have another conversation. And the the decision is made to um, sell him into slavery instead. He is taken as a slave to Egypt. So I want you to think about that, because I I read a a commentary by an African-American pastor that changed a little bit my my understanding of this story. We, we tend to think of the Joseph narrative as the descent and then the rise, the descent and then the rise. Um, but this pastor was saying that Joseph remained a slave. Um, he was sold into slavery. He remains a slave and that, yeah, he may be working for Pharaoh, but working for Pharaoh means you better watch it because your head could be separated from your neck, uh, pretty easily. So it's just a different kind of slavery, but we shouldn't forget that Yosef is, in fact, uh, a slave. And of course, we know this foreshadows his whole family coming down, that family coming down because of the famine that we're going to read about this morning. That is what brings them to Egypt, where they, of course, will become eventually, according to our sacred mythology, they will become enslaved. All right. So this is both the, the kind of Joseph novella, but it's also the story of the of the sons of Jacob that will come to Egypt. This is the beginning of the national story as well. All right. So that's where we're at. We're at, and Joseph has had some ups and downs uh, and we're now uh, at the moment where Pharaoh has had a terrible night's sleep and he has some very disturbing dreams. Um, Garfield, the cat would say, it's like pepperoni pizza dreams. Um, Right. So he, Um, He has some really bizarre dreams. And in Egypt and in the ancient world, dreams were considered to be communications often from another world, another realm uh, and the beyond. And so they were taken very seriously. Uh, In Egypt, it became a profession. It never did in Israel. It never did in ancient Israel become a profession to interpret dreams. And Joseph is very clear that it is not he who is interpreting. It is God. So Torah is very careful to be clear, that we don't uh, have uh, this profession. Joseph does not become a professional dream interpreter. Joseph draws on what he understands now to be a God-given insight into the meaning of the dream and, um, and interprets the dream for Pharaoh. Uh, he, seven fat cows, seven lean cows are together. The fat cows, the lean cows eat the fat cows, and then, but they don't change. They don't get any bigger. And so Pharaoh's freaked out about this. Uh, Joseph interprets this, that there's going to be seven years of fat of bumper crops and seven years of famine, seven years of bumper crops are on their way. Okay. So those of you who know the musical, some of us know it by heart um, because we did it in fourth grade. So, um, so we have um, seven years of bumper crops coming seven years of famine. That's the moment that, that, Um, We are at where Joseph tells Pharaoh what it is um, they're going to need to do. So Joseph has told Pharaoh what has to happen uh, before Pharaoh even asks. Joseph says, here's what's about to happen. Here's what you need to do. You need to store the grain from the seven years. You need to hoard it, essentially, and so that you have it for the seven years. Um, during the seven years of bumper crops, so you have it for the seven years of famine. So here we go. So where are we? We were at the seven years of abundance that the land of Egypt enjoyed came to an end. Vatichlena sheva hasava All right. So so the vatichlena sheva harav and. And the seven years of famine set in. If you even if you don't read Hebrew, look at the beginning of verse 53 and verse 54. You can see that those words look very similar. There's just one change: a chaf and a chet. So this is stuff we miss in English. Vatichlena and Vatchilena. So one is about something ending and one is about something beginning, but, and these words have just one letter apart. So it's a beautiful actual wordplay, uh, in the Hebrew, uh, in terms of this being a literary piece. Um, and so the rabbis asked the, so it says, when all the land of Egypt felt the hunger, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he tells you, you shall do. So, the rabbis asked the question, so what do you mean like so 7 years of abundance happens and then boom, 7 years and then just famine? Like right away? It takes some time to eat what you would have harvested. If you had 7 great years, you've got grain stored usually from that. What happened? How did fa- how did 7 years of plenty end and then boom, immediately begins Famine, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Usually it takes some years to descend into famine. So the Midrash says, Joseph, his skill is talent. And the reason he's so successful is not just that he predicts you need to save grain, but that he knew the technology by which to keep it from rotting. The other people, yes, had grain stored because that's what happens when you have great crops. You sell surplus, but you also keep enough. For, to feed your family would, because you might have a, a bad year. Well, so the Midrash says all the grain rotted, all the stored grain rotted. And so that's why famine set in right away, because they didn't have anything left. Joseph knew how to prevent that stuff from rotting, how to prevent insects from, from invading um, by taking soil from the land uh, and putting it on the grain And uh, so this is what this is how the rabbis deal with what looks like a a not so like sensible thing that the seven years ended, boom, immediately famine begins. okay go to Yosef, Pharaoh says, and do what he says. So when the famine became severe in Egypt, Joseph laid open all that was within and rationed out grain to the Egyptians The famine, however, spread over the whole world. So this is like the Noah story with the flood. It flooded the whole world, meaning the world that they knew, the world that they could see and hear from and experience, right? So meaning the region. So famine spreads throughout the region. This is not uncommon, by the way, Um, in ancient Egypt, uh, seven-year cycles, of abundance, and then the Nile um, not o- overflowing and therefore not irrigating the crops for another seven years is, is, is attested to in the ancient literature, in the ancient uh, sources that we have found in archeology. span So it is not unusual. This story clearly understands Egypt. Um, the commentator Sarna says, um, this is very technical knowledge that the author has of the realities of Egypt, and they are accurate. Everything in here has been attested to in uh, literature outside of the Bible. That th- that this kind of famine happened. That it often affected the entire region. Um, okay, so Jacob, all right. We ta- I talked about this at the High Holidays. Do you remember? right? I talked about Shever. We talked about Shavar being shattering, breaking, the Mashber being crisis and the birthing stool. And then everyone remembers my Rosh Hashanah sermon. Nobody remembers the one that I did on Yom Kippur. Okay, fine. So the one I did on Yom Kippur says that it goes further than just crisis and birthing stool. Yes, that's the exciting one. That was the gorgeous one. And Shever also means rations. The food you get When you break grain open and take the fruit, the nut, whatever it's called, whatever that's called, that when you break open the husk of, you know, of the grain. So that's why it's shever. It's the same shoresh, the same root as shatter, break, crisis that we talked about at the high holidays. Shever, that which is threshed, food that is broken open so that you can get to it. So there is Shever in Mitzrayim. Vayomer so, Yaakov levanav lama titra'u? So Yaakov says to his son, so what are you standing around looking at each other for? There's Shever in Egypt. Now I hear he went on that there are rations, Yesh Shever, to be had in Egypt. Go down and procure rations for us there, that we may live and not die. So this is what I spoke about at Yom Kippur: that they go down. Joseph goes down. Everybody goes down. The rabbis talk about yerida litzorech aliyah, a going down that it that is necessitate that. Well, no, I, I have no English left. Okay, so this quarantine's killing my vocabulary. I have to tell you. So a going down for the purpose of going up. Sometimes we have to go down in order, descend in order to then come up. This is all over literature, but it's all over mythic reality. It's all over. I'm sure Mark Fish would tell us the many ways. Um, Richard Siegel will tell us. Ed Dreyfus will tell us all that this is everywhere. Descent into, into darkness, into chaos, into the unknown is, into the cave, whatever, however you want to talk about it, is often necessary before we can, right, come up. And life is not just about coming up. It's about these descents as well. And so here it is in our Joseph narrative that they are sent down to Egypt. It's always down to Egypt. Egypt's a dangerous place. It's a place of temptation, uh, right? It's a, and it certainly has been dangerous for Joseph. It's going to be dangerous for the Jewish people. Um, they descend, and we know eventually it's going to be about. Uh, in this story, arise. All right. Vayerdu Ache Yosef Asara. So the brothers of Joseph, they were ten. Went down Lishbor Bar Mitzrayim. Lishbor the verb from Shever to to rationize. They're going to go rationize rations. Okay. So, um, so what do I want to say? Oh yeah. 10 brothers. Why 10? Cause Joseph is in the palace, right? Being the number two and Benjamin is at home with Jacob because here we're going to see why the epinyamin, but Jacob, but Benjamin, the brother of Joseph he did not send. Jacob did not send with the brothers. So Ahi Yosef, why is Benjamin called Ahi Yosef? Aren't they all brothers of Joseph? Why is Benjamin called the brother of Joseph? Because it is his only full brother. It is his only uterine sibling from Rachel. So the Vayavau Bnei Yisrael Lishbor Beto So Bnei So they... Came, who did? B'nai Yisrael. This is the first time we see this expression in the Bible. The first time we see B'nai Yisrael, the descendants of Israel. Here, literally, the children of Israel. Because they are literally the children of Israel, right? I hate it when I read English texts and it's talking about the nation and it says the children of Israel. No, here it means the children of Israel. Everywhere else, it means the descendants of Israel, the people Israel. But this is the first time we get this phrase beneath Israel. They're going to go rationize, rations. Okay. Now, Yosef, who has Al-Haaretz? He is the vizier of the land. It was he who dispensed rations to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and brothers came and bowed low to him with their faces to the ground. So we do know from many of the details in this story that there are titles that were given in Egypt to important people. Um, non-egyptians often rose to positions of prominence. We have had other Semitic names be very high up in Egyptian uh, uh, aristocracy. No, not aristocracy. In the really important positions, right? So in the court, if you will, in in jobs that are super important, um, very close to Pharaoh. So this is not out of, um, this is not super imagination like this could never happen, um, it has happened. It's It wasn't, you know, the usual course, but it but it has happened. And we have that in the in the archaeological record. So they come and just like his dream predicted, they bow, right? Remember the sheaves, the 11 sheaves bow to his sheaf of grain in his dream. Here we have the brothers bowing low before Joseph. When Joseph saw that his what, his brothers, he recognized them. So he didn't know they were coming. They didn't send a postcard, like, dear Pharaoh, we're hungry. Love B'nai Yisrael, right? They they just show up like everybody else. They're starving. The famine has hit the whole region. So like everybody else, they come down. It's, again, attested to in the archaeological record that someone in Joseph's position would have had the authority to deal with people from another region, from outside of Egypt, from Canaan, and would have would have had permission to decide what to do with them, because they came a lot when there was famine in Canaan. Remember, we've talked about Canaan's dependent on rain. Egypt is dependent on the Nile. So often there was food in Egypt, but not in Canaan, because there wasn't rain, but the Nile had overflowed and irrigated the crops. That's not the case here. They have food because Joseph hoarded it, um, in silos, but doesn't matter. It was very common for people to come down from Canaan during a famine to Egypt. So he recognizes them, but he acted like a stranger toward them and spoke harshly to them. We take this part of the story for granted, but Aviva Zorenberg doesn't. She reads this as if we're reading it for the first time and really analyzing what's happening. And I really hadn't paid attention to this part of the story for a long time he he recognizes them. Why doesn't he just say, guys, it's me. Guys, look, it's me. How's dad? Where's Benjamin? <laughs> right? Like that would be a normal response, right? But he doesn't do that. Joseph acts, I, I think she, she has a beautiful chapter on it. Uh, Zorenberg does. I think Joseph is acting as the traumatized PTSD survivor that he, he's very nervous in seeing them, right? He, these are his torturers. We have to imagine the relationship wasn't great between them before they threw him in a thing, trying to kill him. Right. We had to, we have to imagine they didn't like him before that. And we get indications about that. Um, So possibly his life was really hard among them before that. But but they tried to kill him. They laid hands on him and tried to kill him. And then his life is over. He had already lost his mother. Imagine the trauma of that for a child. And then he's orphaned from his father who adores him, who's his protector. He's orphaned by them on purpose. One parent was childbirth. That happens. But the other parent? He's orphaned because of these guys. So he sees them and there has to be like, you know, when I thought about it more, this, this mix of anger and sadness and fear and revulsion and, and love also. I mean, it had to be pretty tangled and he decides like on the spot, not to tell them who he is and to speak harshly Dafka, to them. And he says, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to procure food. For though Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Why not? Joseph is speaking Egyptian to them. He is in the clothing, the dress, the hair, the makeup, the jewelry, everything of a very powerful, very wealthy, very well-connected Egyptian official. Recalling the dreams that he had had about them, Joseph said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the land in its nakedness. But they said to him, lo, Adoni, no, my Lord, truly your servants have come to procure food. We are all of us sons of the same man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies, right? We're all the sons of one man, meaning we're not a gang. We're actually a family, a clan, but he said to them, no, you have come to see the land in its nakedness, and they, meaning while it's vulnerable. And they replied, we, your servants, are 12 brothers. Uh-oh. What did they just do? We're 12 brothers. How many of them are standing there? Uh, Brother. 10. right uh can y'all not count what's the deal sons of a certain man in the land of canaan the youngest however is now with our father and one enenu Mm -hmm. is no more enenu and zornberg writes a beautiful uh, stuff on enenu joseph's whole existence is um uh you know is very precarious enenu he isn't that's exactly what it means. And one isn't. So he his journey is between being and the danger of Enenu of he isn't. What what is that the um the something lightness of being? You remember that? The extraordinary lightness of being, right? So that's what this is about for Zornberg. She says Enenu is the story of Joseph's life. And in the Midrash he goes all the way back to Isaac and says, yeah, God likes to pick a sacrifice from each generation of my family, meaning I'm the one now, right? So uh, it's intense. I mean, it's pretty intense that the Enenu, right, is, is what Joseph's whole identity is built around, existing or not existing. The orphan um, of history, says Peter Pitzala, that Joseph is not the stranger like Moshe called by God to be the prophet. Yosef is the orphan of history. Okay.
1: I like to call it the presence of an absence.
0: The presence of an absence, beautifully stated. Uh, Rick, that's right. That, that's, a, that's what Zorenberg says is at the core of Joseph, um, of his identity is exactly that. The presence of the possibility of absence is always there and informs just about everything he does in an almost tragic way the way he names his sons. Uh, she has a whole thing on each of those names and what it, how it shows up in Joseph's life about this idea of absence at the center, right? The, the absence, the, the great presence of the possibility of absence. Beautifully said, thank you. But Joseph said to them, it is just as I have told you, you are spies. But th- by this, you shall be put to the test. Unless your youngest brother comes here, by Pharaoh, you shall not depart from this place. He's now set a test for them. Go get Benjamin and bring him down here to me. He knows that they have no idea what he intends to do to that younger brother. So what will be their answer? Will they say, okay, we'll be right back, <laughs> right? Like they did with him. Okay, fine. Like the, if we can survive, we'll, get, we'll, we'll do whatever we need to do with Benjamin He says, let one of you go and bring your brother up, but I'm not stupid. While the rest of you remain confined, right? That your words may be put to the test, whether there is truth in you. Else by Pharaoh, you are nothing but spies. (laughs) Right? By the life of Pharaoh, you are nothing but spies. Look at the beautiful Hebrew here, 17. (inaudible) He gathered them. (inaudible) What is his name? Yosef. So we could put that in parentheses. Va yesov Yosef otam. Right. So his name means like to to add, to gather. Va otam. He gathers them together uh, in the guardhouse. He throws them in jail for three days. So he's going to shake them up. He's going to take them out of their context. He's going to strip them of their worldly identity by making them prisoners for three days. Get a little taste, guys, of what I've been through. Get just a tiny little taste of what it is to be locked away from the world with absolutely no ability to get out. How's it feel? On the third day, you have to imagine, they're they're like, what is happening? And they don't know when they're getting out. So on the third day, they've gotta be shocked that they have no idea what's happening. Do this and you shall live for I am a God fearing man. If you're honest, let one of your brothers be held in your place and the rest of you go and take home rations for your starving households. But you must bring me your youngest brother, that your words may be verified that you may not die. And they did that. They said to one another and he hears them. Joseph is listening. Alas, we are being punished on account of our brother. Because we looked on at his anguish, yet paid no heed as he pleaded with us. That is why this distress has come upon us. Joseph hears them say, this is happening because what goes around comes around. And we looked at the suffering of our brother and did nothing. He pleaded with us. He begged us and we did nothing. That is why this is happening. So he hears that they understand and are taking some responsibility for having tortured him and then having done what they did to him. Then Reuben spoke up and said to them, did I not tell you? Do no wrong to the boy, but you didn't listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between him and them. They speak freely because he's speaking Egyptian, they don't know he understands. My parent, my father's parents, whenever they were having a serious conversation, had it in Yiddish, so that he wouldn't understand. They didn't know he understood a lot because they'd been talking Yiddish around him his whole life. <laughs> so he let them keep talking, even as he began to understand what they were saying. Because it's like if they don't know, I don't understand. They're going to keep talking right in front of me. So that so that's what's happening. The brothers are talking freely because they don't think Joseph understands. Kanaanese. He turned away from them, Vegevke, and he wept. But he came back to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from among them and had him bound before their eyes. So he he weeps, like he hearing this, hearing his brothers say this, that they they kind of get it. He weeps. So why does he weep? Think about that for a little bit. Right, we can talk about it. Um, but right, lots, lots, lots going on there. In the, I have to imagine, in that weeping, right, <laughs> lots happening for Joseph at the moment. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and return each one's money to his sack and give them provisions for the journey. And this was done. So he gives them the grain, but he's sly. He has his people slide into the bag the money. That They were supposed to pay for the grain, okay? So they loaded up their asses and they go. As one of them was opening his sack to give feed to his ass, what did he see? Uh Uh-oh, there's the payment for the grain. Ruh-roh. And he said, my money's been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank and trembling. They turned to one another and said, what is this that God has done to us? Because what's it going to look like? gonna look like they stole it they didn't pay so they've got bags full of groceries and all the cash that they brought to pay for it so when they came to their father they told him all that had befallen them that that he spoke to them harshly accused us of spying we said we were honest men blah 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 that we are 12 of us brothers sons of the same father but the man said, blah, 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 blah. We saw that. Bring your youngest brother to me and you shall be free to move about the land. They're, then they tell him about the money. And what does Jacob answer? What does Jacob answer? It is always me that you bereave. Joseph, what's happening with Joseph? Enenu. Joseph isn't. And, and now, Shimon, enenu. Shimon isn't, and now you're gonna take Benjamin. <laughs> so this—I don't know. This translation's weird. Um, tikahu, you're gonna at Benjamin Tikahu and Benjamin, you want to take alaiha you All this, all this is on me. It hap- it comes down on me always. What y'all do and stuff always comes down a lie on me. And Reuben said to his father, you may kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But he said, my son must not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. And if he meets with disaster on the journey you are taking, you will send my white head down to Sheol in grief. You can't take him. You can't do that to me look what the world has done to me. I can't, I can't do it. If something happens to Benjamin, I'm dead. So he lets them finish all the rations they bought in Egypt. (laughs) And then he decides that if it's going to be that, that, that Benjamin, something befalls him, then that's, what's going to be because they are now starving again And we talked about Judah and Tamar. So I just want to show you this verse. Then Judah said to his father, Israel, send the boy in my care and let us be in our way that we may live and not die. You and we and our children. I myself will be surety for him. Reuben said, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring back Benjamin. What does Judah say? I will be surety for him the word in Hebrew is -er ervenu. I will replace him. I will, I will be in his stead, right? I, I will be, it's actually the word for like weaving things together. Um, that I I will be woven together. My existence will be woven into his, I will replace him. um, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I shall stand guilty before you forever. And by the way, Dad, we could have been there and back twice had you not like been so wrapped up in your own mishgas that we we've eaten through all the rations. We could have gone down there and come back twice. Thank you very much. And so Judah has learned from the loss of his two sons, from nearly killing another son by burning the pregnant Tamar, Judah has learned what this loss would mean to Jacob. He understands what it would mean for Jacob to lose Benjamin. He's lost Yosef. Judah is somewhat responsible for that. He knows what that feels like. He's lost one son. Jacob does not want to lose a second son. And Judah knows what that feels like to lose a second son. And almost... A third had he killed Tamar. Okay. So let's see what's happening over here. Isn't it more likely that Joseph was just deciding whether or not to punish his brothers? David Russo, you are a hard man. That's a hard answer. You think he's just calculating? He's just trying to figure out whether or not to have their heads cut off? Maybe. Maybe. I like to think there's more going on there. Like, if you think about Sure, I'm sure. Revenge is one of the one of the many powerful emotions that come up, but we see him weep later. I just think there's more going on for him than just am I going to kill them or not. Um, but you know, we we don't know. We're not told. Memet says Joseph had a lot of time to think about whether he wanted to punish his brothers or not, <laughs> right? He's been fantasizing maybe for, you know, 20 years. I guess this is the kind of decision you can't make easily because it's about those closest to you. Not only not easily, but can you really live with it? Can you really do it in the moment? Can you really execute them? Your brothers, right? So yeah, there's, there's a lot going on and he has to have been fantasizing about this for a super long time.
2: In the near East, you can make that decision.
0: You said in the near East, you can make that decision.
2: They do make that decision. They
0: do make that decision, right? Well, people Unfortunately, everywhere. Unfortunately, yeah. His, his brothers made that decision about him, right? I mean, so clearly they do, um, for sure. Um, let's see, but it doesn't mean it's easy, right? Talking about xenophobia towards immigrants, so meaning Joseph calling them spies. I'm not sure what Barry means there.
1: That's like stereotype. They're kind. They're not coming here. Uh, they're honestly. They're not sending their best. Uh are spies they are trying to, hard, uh, to hurt us, to harm us. Okay. So he, he picks out this, this uh, stereotype that uh, probably was prevalent even then towards people who are outsiders. Uh, and uses it. They, they know that we're, we're in crisis and they're right. coming to see how
0: they can profit from it. Right. So he uses that xenophobia as a cover because um, they would probably understand it, right? Like if it was widespread, they're always out to kill us. You know, immigrants, foreigners are dangerous. They have to have an ulterior motive, you know, whatever it is. Okay. So using that xenophobia, kind of like the midwives used Pharaoh's xenophobia against him when they were asked, how come, how come the babies, you're not, you're not destroying the male babies. There's all these male babies surviving. You're supposed to kill them in the birthing stool, throw them in the Nile, and they said we can't yeah, we'll get to these are. we can't get to these Hebrew women fast enough. They're like they're not like Egyptian women, like real people. They're like beasts, and they just drop their babies in the field, and we can't get there fast enough, right? So, using xenophobia um, that's well known, right, against against folks uh, is the crafty way of our heroes in the Torah. Brian Searle says maybe. He wanted to see if they had changed their morality, their characters, or just the same old, same old. So clearly that's what he decides. Clearly he decides on a test. He sets up this theater in order to see what they're going to choose. For sure, that's what he winds up uh, deciding. When he weeps, he is consoled because they have acknowledged their wrongdoing. So some of his weeping is, is consolation, says Lisa, that he... He under he they are acknowledging that they were wrong, and that moves him deeply. I think that's absolutely part of what's going on with him weeping I, it has to be um that that he's he's touched on some level maybe it's a release you know all that anger he's had, all the fantasies of revenge um maybe there's a release now that he sees that they that they're that they've changed um that there's a possibility for something other than just needing to rip their faces off. Um, Other comments or questions? There's this
1: interesting comparison that can be made between Reuben and Judah. Uh Uh-huh. And if you'd like to talk about it, it would be interesting. Say more. They both both have very different reactions. One of them, Reuben says, kill my two sons. But Judah says, I will be. He takes responsibility upon himself. And, and also you have Ruben's, you have always Reuben speaking and then Judah speaking. They're only, the only two that are talking. And um, uh, when Reuben uh, speaks to his, brother, his brothers, he says, you know, I told you so. I told you
0: you shouldn't. I, I don't think that's exactly how it happened. Right. So, and, and we know what's going to happen eventually is that Judah is going to be from whence comes the king?
1: I think the story is, is really trying, really, but uh, also trying to uh, explain why the tribe of Judah is the king and not the eldest.
0: For uh, sure. For sure. Because somewhere in Israel's history, right, Judah rose to prominence over Reuben. Um, Reuben being the firstborn, of course, means that that tribe had some kind of preeminence originally, uh, and right, so this is kind of how the elephant got its trunk, right? So a little bit about why Reuben is not the the capital, why Reuben is not from whence kings will descend, but Judah instead, for sure. Um, there's a lot of etiology uh, going on here, I think, for sure, Barry. Um, and and the commentators see that, you know, anyone who comments says, you know, and Reuben then sleeps with Jacob's concubine, right? So Reuben Re- Reuben is kind of, you know. He messes up in a way that, um, that, uh, that explains why in history he is, he is not a preeminent anymore. Um, so, Mehmet, you asked um, when he says, I'm a God fearing man, what God is he talking about? Torah understands it that he's talking about Yudhei Vavhe, that he's talking about the God of his fathers, the God of his ancestors, the God that Yaakov encountered when he wrestled right? And got the name Yisrael, right? So um, that's the God Joseph understands as being the one that gives him the the power to interpret dreams and the insight to do that. Um, That's the one that he worships. Even, But remember, syncretistic worship was common in the ancient Near East and in Egypt. So you could have your own God without in any way having a problem with Egyptians having their gods. There was lots of gods. Um, right. So um, he so <laughs> Barry says he swears by the name of Pharaoh and not Yute Vape, right? Because he, he's playing the good Egyptian, right? And who's the authority? And Pharaoh's a god in Egypt. So if you're gonna play the good Egyptian vizier, you're gonna swear by He Farao, right? And not Yute Vafei. That would have that would have signaled them right away. Had he sworn by Yutevafei, that would have given it away um who he really is and who he's really aligned with and who he really worships because where else did they worship theothe buffet nowhere yeah amy yeah
2: can i make a comment Please. i i visited um an ancient greek town about 2 months ago here in turkey uh, it's called aphrodisias and there is there was a jewish community there and they um unearthed an inscription uh <laughs> near this local synagogue uh on which we read um in Greek, uh, the word Jews. And then the second group is the God-fearers. The God-fearers are those who believe in the Judaistic God, but they're not directly Jews. So I'm just questioning now if Joseph was giving them a sign by saying, I'm a God-fearer.
0: Oh, interesting. That he's trying to tip his hand? Yeah. Could be.
2: Just signaling.
0: Uh-huh. If, if they pick it up, which they don't,
2: yeah, yeah, just a right. the theory.
0: If he was signaling, they, they're not not the raddest bulbs on the tree, if you know what yeah. I mean. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. All right. Um, Joseph also has to deal with the recognition of the power of his own murderousness, says Mark Fish. What has been fantasy perhaps may become reality, causing conflict and anxiety within his own values and his God and bringing on fear of inner and outer retribution. Whoa, okay. Wow. Wow, yeah, right? Talk about having a lot going on, right, Mark? Exactly, right? It's one thing to fantasize about getting back at somebody. It's a whole nother business when they're right in front of you and you have the power to do so. It's one thing. You may even be a little ashamed of your fantasies about getting back at somebody, right? But when they're actually right in front of you and you are confronted with the very real possibility of taking that revenge, that has to cause some serious conflict. If you are, in fact, a God-fearing person, if, in fact, you have a relationship with a God for whom some things would be a no-no and wrong, just basically wrong, then you have a serious conflict, bringing on new fear of inner and outer retribution. I love that. If I kill them, what happens? Both internally for me, what what is the punishment or what are the consequences for me as a person and in my relationship to something I call God? Because we know Joseph has that relationship. He truly does. He says to Pharaoh, it's not me, it's God. He says, I'm a God-fearing man. So he has that, obviously. So then what would that mean if he just lopped off their heads What would that mean for him in terms of the consequences internally, as well as has Pharaoh given him permission to execute these folks who come looking for grain? No. And we see with Moses what happens when Moses takes that authority on himself, even as a prince of the palace, he is a fugitive. Moses, when he takes that action of killing the taskmaster, Moses becomes a fugitive Because you cannot take that authority from Pharaoh, right? To just execute people. That that power belongs to Pharaoh. And that's too close to challenging uh, Pharaoh's authority. Barry says, oh, the number of times I fantasized about telling my former boss what I really think about him as soon as I move on to my next job. We've all had that fantasy. We've all been there. (laughs) Right. Um, Those of us who've had bosses. uh, Yeah. So it's. uh, And so when, you know, when we talk about mindfulness practice and mindfulness meditation, (laughs) this is a lot of what we need to like stop. Right. Or relax from is because our brains are constantly doing this, constantly running over the past. Constantly keeping score, constantly fantasizing, whether it's about reunions or about asking forgiveness and, and, and fixing something, repairing something, or about retribution. This is what our brains do constantly. So we have to assume that Joseph has been doing this for 20 years. They've been separated. He's grown up. He was a youth. He's now the vizier of Egypt. It's been 20 years that's a long time to perseverate, right? On how to get even um, with folks who have done you wrong and done you the ultimate wrong, meaning they they could have they could have assumed you're sold into slavery. Your life often doesn't last very long, and if it does, it's not going to be pretty. Like they've done the worst they can do outside of killing him, which is take away his identity as a as an individual human being and making him property. All right. So I want to share uh, the words of uh, Peter Pizzola um, with you. Um, there's so much I have to pick what I want to share. Okay. okay. Providence writes Peter Pizzola is a way of affirming that there is a meaning in life an emergent good from an evident evil, a possible healing from enormous wounds. This power of the present to reclaim the past lays the myth slash theological groundwork for all subsequent tales of redemption. It is no coincidence that the name of the father of the Messiah in the Christian dispensation is Joseph. All right, so right, this, the, the heart of the myth is that great healing can come from enormous wounds that there is meaning in life. Uh, all right. So, um, when he, so he, at the end of our story, like he, he kind of gets it that all of this was done. Everything that's happened to him was to put him in the position to save his family. That's really what Joseph takes away from all of this. I you know how i feel about moses i go back and forth about moses you know that um and so i also go back and forth about joseph there's years where i'm like this poor guy is really just a shell of a human being <laughs> like he, it just it, there's he's got to be like so broken and so whatever and he marries this egyptian daughter of the high priest but he names his kids like these things that that are really indicative of his pain and like And right. He, he doesn't have his father till, you know, late till his father's late in life. I just, I'm like, poor guy. Like he never really got a life kind of like Isaac. He just is a shell. Um, And other years I kind of get what Peter Pitzel is saying is that no, it's the opposite. It's this tale of meaning. It's a story of Yosef finding meaning and purpose even in, and maybe because of all of his suffering that only through suffering and going down to Egypt as a slave and being In Potiphar's house and having all of that taken away, which puts him in the prison where the baker and butler are. So he interprets their dreams. And one of them talks to Pharaoh when Pharaoh has a dream. That's how Joseph gets before Pharaoh. All that had to happen for him to be able to be in this position when his starving family comes to Egypt, that he could feed them, that he could save their lives, that he understands this as redemptive. His story as redemptive is what Peter Pitsola is suggesting um, when Joseph, because Joseph says to them at the end of the story, we're not there. We'll get there next year. Foreshadow, preview. Um, So he, at the end, says like, God sent me before you, essentially, to be here for this moment. So Peter Pitzela writes, such wisdom comes when we find our vocation. When we find it, we feel it is necessary for us that it was, quote, meant to be. Crystallizing often for us out of many trials and errors, often requiring loss, a setting forth into the unknown, a sense of soul, peril, wrestling, and darkness. This quest for vocation and its gradual attainment gives us a sense of personal necessity and of connection to the way, capital W, the source, capital S, the wheel of life, the ground of being. We can come in the end, so the patriarchs would have us believe, to serve, to provide, and to find our brothers. With them, we can fashion a brotherhood. This is our right livelihood, our way of being in the world without destroying it, our soul's work. For some of us that, I mean, that resonates so deeply for me. Once, often vocation is only out of peril, out of wandering into the darkness, into the unknown, and coming out of deep trauma and pain and loss. And for me, that is seriously true, that um, that is, my vocation has come out of all of those things. Being kicked out of a, you know, out of, you know, traditional Jewish community because I was gay, what, you know, all the loss that that meant, all the journey through the questioning, you know, the regret, the sadness, a crazy mother, the, the torture of living with that as a child, the torture of trying to be in relationship to that as a young adult and an adult, all, all of the many things that, And we all have them. And and then when one finds one's vocation that is informed by all those things, I would not have come to this without all that loss. I would not have gone to rabbinical school had I not had that experience because I wanted to be a rabbi to welcome people who got kicked out. I went to rabbinical school to be a rabbi, to welcome LGBTQ plus people, converts, anyone who was at the margins, who felt read out of this whole business. I was going to be the rabbi to welcome them in. How I got to be the rabbi of the biggest mainline regular synagogue, I will never know ever because that was not the plan. Um, That's vocation that 's vocation, and then one feels like Pierre Pittler says so beautifully, you feel a connection to the way, the source, the wheel of life, the ground of being, you feel of necessity that you are a necessity to the world, and that that is what we all want isn 't it to feel like we 're a necessity um, to other people, to this brotherhood, to what we can create to work you know to be together and do this together to make the world Better it's just that's so beautiful to me about and it makes me think, okay, right, this this is a redemptive story. Yosef, you know, understands it that way. He says so. Um, because we have a choice. We can stay victims, we can whine and complain and regret and whatever. I wish it had been different, I wish it had been different, I wish it had been different. Or we can say, Okay, out of all of that comes my vocation, whatever that is, being a loving partner, being a parent, being whatever your vocation is, being an artist, you know, whatever it is, it's, um, it's another way we can choose to understand uh, our lives. And I think uh, Peter Pizzola, um says it seriously um, beautiful. And he says, there is nothing dated about this tale or about this wisdom. Like Joseph, we can know that we live in two worlds or that this world is shot through with glints and glimmers of mysterious connections, far-fetched coincidences that hint to us of immense designs. May we be open this Shabbat and coming week to the hints of an immense design of which we can only know a tiny, tiny fraction, but let us remember for sure, for sure, we walk